Daddy, oh my God, it's me, Peaches Christ, your old ghoul friend. Did you miss me? It's been a little while, that's right. This is the first episode of season two of the Midnight Mass podcast, and we are thrilled to be returning. Thanks to all of you listeners, of course. Uh, but I don't do this podcast alone, as you know. I have a fantastic co-host, my dear friend, the filmmaker, the writer, the fabulous, it's Michael Verratti! Hi, Peaches. I'm so excited to be back for season two. Can you believe it? I can't. I, well, I can and I can't. I just, I I, I, I can because I, I think we're doing um, a fairly decent job and people are enjoying what we're doing. And I can't because I just love that we get to do this. You know, I mean, it is kind of a, a it is still a bit of a labor of love. Um, so thank you to all you Patreon subscribers who have helped us with uh, with getting the ball rolling on monetizing this thing. Um because it, it's really, you know, uh, allowed us to keep going to some degree. Of course, we could always use more Patreon subscribers. You and I posted a, a very elaborate, uh, extensive video about what we've been up to, exclusive to our Patreon subscribers. Now, we can't go into all of the gory details and all of the fabulous, juicy gossip that we get into in that video, which you can watch if you subscribe to our Patreon. But we should at least catch up a little bit because it's been a while and our listeners haven't heard from us. So what what have you been up to? How were your holidays? Uh, my holidays were great. It's true. The last time the listeners heard from us, I believe, was when we were hanging out with some Cenobites. And it's been a whole new year since then. Uh, yes. We are here in the middle of the month of February, the month of Forbidden Love, which we'll talk about later in this episode as it applies to this week's film. But I've been good. I've been very busy. As you know, I uh, tend to be a bit of a workaholic. So since we last convened, I finished the scripts for not one but two movies and I also executive produced another in the UK. So, you know, just real chill. Oh, my God. You're so you're like one of those friends who just makes other people feel bad about themselves. Uh, are you OK with that? Yeah. How was the beach, Peaches? <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you. Um, I got a foot massage one day. Um, I went in the water a few times. Oh, I, I ate out at restaurants. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's sort of you know uh, how I spent my time. It is true. I did. We went to um, Mexico for Darren Stein, our our friend Darren Stein's fiftieth birthday, which you. Did not attend. Now, uh, you were, obviously, you were busy doing other things. I tend to, you know, I tend to value my friends and put my friends first. And I know that Daniel, uh, Ter- Daniel, fuck, that's how, how good of a friend he is. <laughs> I know that Darren, <laughs> Darren is listening right now. And Darren uh, loves it when we throw shade at each other. And, and this, this, so this is an honor of Darren. Darren, I'm a better friend than Michael. Face it. It's true. But... <laughs> He'll call me if he needs to hide a body, probably yours. So I'm not real worried about it. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So yes, I, I went to Mexico. It was great. Um, but I am really excited. And, and as uh, you know, I had things planned. I had shows planned and they were postponed. So uh, that's another reason for my uh, seemingly empty schedule was it actually had it had things penciled in, but they, they all got postponed thanks to Omicron. 
And look, roasting each other aside, uh, as listeners probably have gleaned, it takes a lot of work to put this podcast together. And uh, even when Peaches was in Mexico, we spoke probably every other day in preparation for this season. We've been working very hard to get this new season ready for you. Also, Peaches and I collaborate on a lot of things. I also know that she's up to a lot of stuff that she's playing demure about that she can't even tell you. So um, I'm just excited to reunite with you, Peaches, to do a whole new season of this, to celebrate some movies and worship at the altar of cult cinema. Me too. And I'm almost even more excited than I was when we first set out to do it because uh, with season one, I guess you would say, you know, we, we were doing it for the first time. We were kind of like, oh, will this work? Will that work? And we just didn't know. And now I think you and I have a, a better sense of um, just sticking to our guts and doing the things that we're most interested in tend to translate well to the listeners and that the listeners have enjoyed, you know, a lot of our favorite episodes. So it, it sort of pointed us in the right direction as far as season two goes. And I think this episode, episode one, is interesting because you and I, as you know, um, and as you've already mentioned, we love a theme. We love holidays. I mean, we are queer, so we love themes and we love holidays. And uh, I think that as far as a Valentine's episode goes, this is perfect. And then also it's February, so it's Women in Horror Month. And we'll get to why this film is a great representation of one woman in horror, for sure, a trailblazer. And we just, we have some great special guests, and I think it's just the perfect all-around movie to get started with. Michael, what are we celebrating this week? Well, the rumors are true. Peaches and I are headed down south to take a forbidden dip in a deep, deep <laughs> lagoon. That's right. We are celebrating 1954's universal horror classic, The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which was originally presented in loving 3D and directed by Jack Arnold and, I believe, the last of the original Universal Monster Run, depending if you're keeping track and how you do. Uh, we're so excited about this because this is our first Universal Monster, and I can't imagine us starting anywhere else uh, other than the creature because I think in a lot of ways... The creature is kind of our our kind of creature. You know, it, it, oh, there's yeah. a lot of otherness, a lot of queerness. Someone we could hang out with for sure. It's definitely the draggiest costume, you know, because it's so elaborate and so so kind of fabulous. Even though there's not necessarily fashion going on, I would argue that their natural suit is the fiercest couture of all the monsters. But I did want to say that, like the Universal monsters as their own genre, while while we know that they were popular uh, when they came out, I mean, I think they epitomize, you know, what it means to like cult movies. The fact that people have embraced these old movies and kept them alive for so many years, and the, these characters resonate with so many people, is sort of the epitome of cult. Also because, as we'll discuss, so much of these stories and the attraction to these characters uh, wait for it, wait for it, listener. You're going to be shocked. But it's queer. You know, there's a queerness yeah. to these monsters and an otherness, which, of course, we love to talk about. I think the Universal Monsters in general are just fascinating. I love that when you go to, like, Universal Horror Nights, uh, Universal now is embracing this. You know, for, for years, 
they kind of uh, were, were sort of forgotten or, you know, left behind. And, you know, monster fans were sort of going, hey, Universal, you could be doing more. But now they take the intellectual properties of, you know, the, the, the Blumhouse and, and the really popular stuff like Stranger Things and then the vintage popular stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Halloween and, and turn these mazes into fabulous, you know, immersive experiences. But my favorite, the last time I was there, was their Universal Monster Maze. Oh, it is fabulous. And I love that it's still around. It's still alive. It's alive! <laughs> <laughs> I think that these things are still around, not only because these movies are so good and these stories are so good, but they're timeless. I mean, we could go through all of the Universal monsters and, and talk about individually why Dracula still persists, why Frankenstein still persists. And they'll get their own episodes at some point. But right now we're with the creature. And the thing is, this movie was made in 1954. And yet a lot of the social and cultural issues that are presented in this movie are still social and cultural issues today. This movie has uh, an environmentalism message. It talks about colonialism and the idea of incurring on someone else's territory. There is the whole queer and otherness to this. Taboo love. Taboo love. This movie... And this character persists because, though made more than 50 years ago, more than almost 70 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not, I measured in English, not math, so I <laughs> no, apologize. No, you're correct, I, you're correct. Almost 70 years. These things are still as prevalent as ever. Maybe more so. Yes. Things like climate change and the way we treat the environment. You know, when you look at what we're, what sort of state the world is in today compared to uh, where we were at in the mid-50s, it's like even more prescient today. I was going to ask you about the creature. Were you always a fan of the creature? Uh, I believe I first saw Creature in one of those like late night horror host cable packages. Um, I I don't know that I initially sought this monster out in terms of uh, how how I found the other ones. I was always a Dracula fan. I'm, I'm a huge Dracula fan. I'm on the record. I've I've written Dracula movies. I've got Dracula art in my home. He's my boy. But you know, if you're looking at that pantheon of creatures pun intended, uh, you can't not look at all the classic universal artwork and not see Gilman and wonder, okay, I know a lot about the Count. I know a lot about what Frankenstein and his monster are up to. We've hung out with the mummy for a bit. Who is this fishy friend? And I did eventually, you know, see this movie on, on television, and it's just so good. It's timeless. One of the things that led us to want to launch with this is because the, the real overriding theme, I think, of this podcast is the connectivity uh, between episodes is how others, uh, the black sheep of the world, the weirdos, the minority folks, identify with these cult films and horror movies. And one of the things that was so interesting about Creature is beyond the obvious, because it is pretty obvious why so many of us really relate to Creature from the Black Lagoon. And we're going to talk about it throughout the episode. But, you know, it is an example of, 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 of a monster who's really the most likable character in the movie. Let's face it, you know. Um, it's true. But beyond that, uh, Michael knew our first guest personally and, and turned me on to this fantastic book she wrote, which is very illuminating about a woman, a behind the scenes woman who had a lot to do with what made the creature so successful. And as Michael and I want to do and, and try to do, it's to showcase how queer people 
people of color and women have been part of this world in this genre, kind of working and hiding in the shadows, both as fans and as filmmakers. And so that's one of the main reasons I think we wanted to kick off season two was to celebrate this fantastic woman. Our first guest, author Mallory O'Mara, is is a dear friend, but also someone who I really respect because she did the work to uncover a hidden history of a figure in horror that people need to know about. If not for this woman that Mallory discovered, and I mean, discovered in the way that she brought her story back, we would not know that one of our most famous monsters was partially created by this kick-ass lady. And so let's jump in and talk to Mallory right now. Welcome back, listeners. Of course, in considering this week's movie, I knew that we had to have this next guest on the show. More than just a creature from the Black Lagoon enthusiast, she wrote a definitive book on the subject. As the author of the best-selling, award-winning The Lady from the Black Lagoon, she pulled back the gills to reveal the hidden history of a would-be horror icon and brought it up from the depths. Beyond that, she is also the author of the critically acclaimed Girly Drinks, A World History of Alcohol, which she's recently been on tour promoting. Listeners may also be familiar with her as the co-host of the immensely popular Reading Glasses podcast, which is a celebration of all things literary. Her next book, Girls Make Movies, is set to debut in winter of 2023, and she has another untitled book just announced. She's an author, historian, host, <laughs> film producer, and if you're asking, bourbon is her drink of choice. Please welcome Mallory O'Meara. Mallory, welcome to the show. Yay. Oh my God, that's the best intro I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do wow. our best here. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk about Creature with you too. <laughs> oh, me too. And I, you, you luck, you always luck out when Michael's the one doing an intro. I was sitting here going like, God, I really need to step up my intro game. <laughs> <laughs> it is very exciting to have you here. Congrats on the new book for sure. Absolutely. So, if bourbon's your favorite drink, do you have a, a favorite particular cocktail? It depends on the season, but I think I'd go with the classic daiquiri. Very, very simple. Ooh. Can always tell you how good a bartender is. I mean, I love a complicated drink like everybody else, but a nice daiquiri or two on a hot day is just perfection for me. Well, if we're starting on this track, let's meld the worlds for a second. What would be the, I, the perfect creature cocktail? Definitely something tiki, for sure. Uh, something blue, something with blue curacao, something with lots of fruit, something sort of over the top. And I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'm sure there is a creature tiki drink. My first tour for Lady from the Black Lagoon, I did an event in Tallahassee. Tallahassee worships Creature from the Black Lagoon. He is like their Michael Jordan. Like, the, they love him so much. <laughs> when I did an event there, they actually made a tiki cocktail that was, like, creature-themed. But I cannot remember anything about it because I was on tour and I was very, like, stressed out and I don't remember. But I know that it existed. I don't think it became a regular menu item, but it would definitely be something uh, something. What is it about Creature from the Black Lagoon? Or even more importantly, like, what was it, you know, when you first discovered it? Because I, I know for all of us who are fans of these things, we have these relationships that evolve over time. But initially, you know, what was that first attraction? And do you remember when you first saw it? 
Oh, I remember. Uh, of course. Everyone remembers that first moment they saw a creature from the Black Lagoon. Everyone loves a hot little freak, right? <laughs> no one else in my family was into horror. I got into horror when I was a uh, young spectrum of teenagedom. And I thought, okay, well, I don't have anyone to show me the ropes. I have no older sibling that's into this or like a weird uncle or whatever. So I was like, okay, I got to teach myself this stuff. And I started watching all the Universal Classic Monster movies because I figured that's the best place to start. And I made my way through them and creatures was the last one that I, I watched because um, Creature is the last one in the Pantheon. You can fight me in the parking lot afterwards, but Creature <laughs> is definitely the last one in, in that Pantheon. And I was watching it and I was just completely entranced. Nobody watches Creature from the Black Lagoon and empathizes with any of the humans. You know, you are watching Creature and you're like, I'm a creepy little clammy person who's horny for sexy people. That's me. <laughs> you know, you no one watches that iconic scene with Creature and Julie Adams and feels like they're Julie. They look at Creature and they're like, that's me. You know, that's how I feel walking around in high school, you know, looking at hot people who will never look at me like that. <laughs> and you feel for him. You know, that's the magic of a lot of monster movies and the universal monsters in general is that you care about the monsters the most. It's so the opposite of the way that we feel in real life. You know, it's not the hot people that get all the attention. It's the weirdos who are the star of the show. I just fell in love with Creature. You know, I, I get it. He just wants to be left alone in his lagoon. People are flicking fucking cigarette butts in there and stuff, and he's getting mad. I was like, buddy, I feel it for you. You are, you're my dude. And I just absolutely fell in love with Creature. I love that you right away spoke to the otherness of the creature because I think especially when looking at the lens of the Universal Monsters, and we talked about this with our other guests as well, is this notion that a lot of the Universal Monsters, with the exception of Dracula, who we know is operatively evil, that's who he is, it's <laughs> what he does, he lives for it, most of them are, are really misunderstood. You know, the Frankenstein monster did not ask to be that way. The creature is chilling in the lagoon <laughs> yes. and is incurred upon. So I'm wondering if the creature is, in your opinion, even unfairly labeled a monster. It all depends on how you define monster. Really, the, the way that most of humanity has defined monster through you know through the ages is that, you know, an other, something that is outside of humanity. To me, Creature is not the bad guy in that movie. Creature is not the monster. It is the crappy white dude who is coming in, trying to boss everyone around and take over this lagoon and put everyone in their place and endanger everyone. And the creature is just hanging out. He's not bothering anyone. And if that one guy hadn't have insisted that they stayed there, they wouldn't have had a problem at all. So that's, uh, it's a great point to that. You know, in most monster movies, it's really not even the monster who's the monster. This is sort of a little bit of a reach, but it reminds me of uh, the way we as queer people, and by queer, of course, I'm, I'm including anybody that's an oddball or didn't fit in or the black sheep of the world. Um, I, I remember once John Waters talking about The Wizard of Oz, and I think I brought it up in the podcast before, where John just sort of goes, why the fuck would she want to go back to Kansas, you know? And oh, I think there's, sure. the, yeah, there's these ways, I mean, that we look at movies and our uh, identity. So I, I'm guessing even today, but especially when the movie came out, there were people who looked at the creature, were scared of the creature, bought the narrative that the the, the humans, you know, were maybe the good people. But I, I also think that that's not really who the movie connects with. No, those are for people who's like the best time of their life is being in high school. You know, those are the exactly. psychopaths of the world. You have to stay away from them. Everybody else is yes. really, really uh, feels for, for the creature and feels, yes. see, I mean, 
mean, you know, there's a great quote from Guillermo del Toro that I cannot remember right now, but it's really how about how monsters allow us to explore ourselves and our faults and our mistakes. Uh, and that's that's what's amazing about Creature is that you get to see, you know, your own loneliness and your own otherness and your own yearning to be a, a part of uh, a more beautiful, more accepted world in him. And um, I think that's why in all of the Universal Monsters, but especially the ones that Michael, you said are make people feel like that have been so iconic and continue to be really important parts of our culture, you know, decades and decades down the line. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that it's still always masked in the the cultural mores of the day. Right. Because I think that if you watch Frankenstein, for example, there's that that God versus science uh, debate is a little more, you're still wanting to side more with the monster, even in the narrative of the movie. But there's something about the way Creature is constructed where these folks come in on a boat. It's it's still a very pro-colonialism sort of concept. But we don't get as much of an onus of misjudgment on them as we do on the villagers and the other scientists in Frankenstein, which is weird because I think what they're doing in creature is somehow in a lot of ways even worse because it's not even so much about their beliefs it's about pushing their themselves into someone else's sphere if that makes sense oh it totally makes sense throughout the whole movie there's like hey you shouldn't go there it is a, it's it's a special place in our mythology it's going to be dangerous for you and you really see and that's why i know that Creature from the Black Lagoon has, there's been a bazillion attempts to remake it. And at this point, I don't think we need to remake it because we have Shape of Water, uh, which to me is just this, is is a sequel to to Creature from the Black Lagoon. But it's so, it's, it's still so relevant. And that's why I think it still holds up so much as you see like this boat full of white Americans comes in and they get so many warnings and you see how they're affecting the local culture and all, all these things that are happening until it literally fights back in the form of Creature. And it just, it's amazing how um, how relevant and how, especially now with the climate change and all this stuff with the environment, there's just so many things in that that feel so fresh and so modern. I would agree with that. I think one of the great things about uh, getting to do this podcast is that uh, we get to revisit these films that even if I haven't seen them sometimes for a handful of years, my relationship with them is different often because of the way I'm viewing it today, especially in the world we live in now, because so much is changing so quickly and things are so different. And in many ways, the prophetic subtext of this film about environmentalism and about the way we treat animals and the environment. And you mentioned the cigarette butt, right? Like, I wonder if the cigarette butt would have been as shocking then as it was to me now, right? Like I didn't remember, but just like how awful it looks and how awful it feels and and just how rude and, and gross and what it represents. And like when they made this movie, there were probably talks about what, what we were doing with the environment, but they weren't yet suffering the real life Armageddon apocalyptic consequences that we are now. So rewatching it, it's like, oh my God, everyone needs to fucking rewatch this movie. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it, it was so, so ahead of its time. I think today would be like a jewel case, you know, or someone throwing their like vape <laughs> container into the lagoon or something or, you or know, just dumping strong. the entire oil contents of the boat, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just dumping a gallon yeah, yeah, of yeah. gasoline in there. But it's yeah. uh, that's why it's always interesting to me that people, even horror itself, gets pushed as an outsider. It's the the genre of film that's not taken seriously. It's like comedy. 
comics. You know, people think it's juvenile, but really there's so much that's so culturally relevant in the stories that are so important and they have endured so much longer than other genres. And that's I'm like, why are you, why are you looking down at horror? It's the most important genre that we have. It's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, horror is really a genre of otherness and a genre of subversion. And if we can't use that in our art to critique the mainstream, we're never going to be allowed to otherwise because they control everything else. Horror is like the one little area we where we get to do stuff and then no one will bother us. It's true. So yeah. Peaches spoke to the changing relationship of cult films. And one thing I usually ask the guests is how has your relationship with this movie changed? However, with you, I think a lot of the proof in the pudding of your changing relationship with this movie is, is out there to buy at bookstores. You see this movie when you're 13, you you are uh, attached to the creature, but when did you return to the creature and start looking deeper? Where, where does the lady from the Black Lagoon begin? Yeah, it was all through Millicent. Um, so what happened was that same day where I watched the creature for the first time, I, you know, I'm, I was a nerd, we're all nerds. And I thought whenever I watched a movie when I was a teenager, and even still now, like the first thing I want to do is look it up afterwards. You know, I want to, especially when I was a teenager, I wanted to see how the effects were done. That was a time period when I was really first learning. I fell in love through with horror through special effects and the gods of my world were Rick Baker, Tom Savini, Dick Smith, Jack Pierce. And I, I all I wanted to do was find out about who made Creature. Up until that point, I just never saw myself in that world. It didn't even occur to me that I could be involved because the only people I ever saw were just like straight white dudes. And it just like, it never even occurred to me. And I was looking online, uh, you know, it was our, our crappy giant P PC. I don't even know what <laughs> brand it was. Um, and I was looking through photos, behind the scenes photos and trivia and facts and stuff. And all of a sudden in a Google image search, there was a photo of a woman working on the creature and it was like being struck by lightning. I was like, hold the fucking phone, who is that? And underneath the, the picture was the caption, Millicent Patrick, illustrator and designer. And that was it. There was, she had no website, she had no Wikipedia page. All I knew was, holy shit, a woman worked on this monster. And it was like getting my brain cracked open. It was like putting the glasses on and they live. You know, I couldn't unsee it. I said, wait a minute, hold on, women can do this. There are women out there doing it. And it directly led to me becoming a filmmaker myself. And so when I was in my mid twenties, I was getting tattooed. <laughs> and I remember talking to my tattoo artist, uh, who actually ended up doing the cover of the book, Lady from the Black Lagoon. And um, we were talking about creature, we talked about monster movies. And I was like, hey, you know, like a woman designed the creature. And I pulled up that that one photo that I had, I'd saved it. And he's like, Oh, my God, she's so amazing looking, I'd love to tattoo her on you. And I said, Wow, okay, that that could be kind of cool. And then I ended up getting the tattoo. And fast forward a couple weeks, I ended up getting in a conversation with a literary agent at a party in New York, I was living in Brooklyn at the time. And he said, Oh, who's that person on your arm? And I was like, Oh, this is the woman who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon, but I don't know anything about her. You know, no one even knows if she's dead or alive. And he was like, Wow, you should write like find her and write a book about it. And I was like, Oh, yeah, great idea. And he's like, No, you should really do that. I'm a literary agent. And I said, okay. And then I started looking for her. The search for Millicent Patrick was the search for proof that I belonged in this world. Wow. That really tried, in a lot of places, in times, tried to push me out. And I started looking at the movie more and looking at the movie deeper. And I had done this, you know, multi-year search for her. And uh, it really reconnected me with the film. The first and still only major studio monster movie that has a monster designed by a woman. Still, 
It was made in 1954. Still 50 years, over 50, I think it's over 60 years later. We still have not had a woman who's gotten to design the, the monster for her major uh, motion picture. That just blew my mind. But, uh, you know, there's just so much about it. I mean, Julie Adams, her role, her role as a scientist in this movie, there was a lot of really amazing female scientists in 1950s monster movies. Uh, but that directly led to the Scully effect mm. and to Laura Dern and Jurassic Park and more women getting into STEM. You know, that there's so much cool about it that, you know, led to Shape of Water. Because uh, I wrote this book pre-Shape of Water and I wrote this book pre-Me Too. So seeing all this stuff kind of, uh, you know, no pun intended, lying underneath the surface and how relevant it is still over 50 years later and how much it touched culture and how much it touched me in my own life and how much Millicent's creation had touched other people. It was just uh, amazing. And obviously I'm extremely biased, but I just think Creature from the Black Lagoon is such an important monster movie because of that. I cannot tell you enough how much I love your story about this. Thank so you. many of us who uh, listen to this podcast, I think I can speak for a lot of the listeners, loved these movies, grew up with these movies, and did not understand completely why we were so attracted to them, and also did not necessarily see ourselves represented in them. You know, certainly I think horror, as far as women go, queer men and people of color, if you looked, if like as a kid in the 80s who devoured Fangoria magazine and went to Fangoria's Weekend of Horrors and stuff, like, let me tell you, when I say they, it was straight and macho and very kind of the, the people driving the, you know, steering the ship were you know, masculine, and uh, and these were the, the most outspoken kind of dude fans, right? Honestly, it was a revelation later in life to find out there were so many of us that were also um, attracted to horror. And the fact that she spoke to you in this way that led you to not only celebrate her with a tattoo, but then to write a book and now share her story with the world, which is now reaching other young women and, you know, um, folks who don't feel like they fit in. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. So I have to ask, you know, you write the book and the process of writing the book. What what did you determine? Who is Melissant? What is the relationship now with this woman and, and their contribution? Millicent and I went through uh, a long journey together. I, I did find she was not alive, which was a huge bummer. There was a big chunk of time where I thought that I could find her, and it was very disappointing to find out that she had passed away in 1998. But I went through a really interesting journey with her because, first off, Millicent Patrick is not a real name. Ah, what's well, a cool name. And that was part of the reason why it was so hard for me to find her. She went under seven different names under the course of her life. Wow. It was absolutely bonkers. It was so hard. Every time I would get to an archive I'd have to it would take me seven times as long because I would have to look under all these different names writing about Millicent Patrick helped me be a better person because when I first started writing about her I know that a lot of um, fans feel this way about people that they whose work really speaks to them especially nowadays when you know there's things coming out about all sorts of people you go through sort of a weird mourning process. And I'm like, so I was finding out all this stuff about Millicent Patrick and she was, she did a lot of amazing things and I still love her to death, but she did some things that weren't great. And at first I said, okay, well maybe I shouldn't write about this. And then I realized, oh my God, I'm judging her. I'm prejudging her. Mm. Like I'm not even letting people form their own opinions about her. I'm just judging her for these things. And I was like, I'm doing the thing to Millicent that I'm hoping that people won't do. And I realized that just because people fuck up, doesn't mean that they're not important. You know, 
women can be flawed and still be worth writing about. It was like an exorcism for me. It like pulled out a lot of internalized misogyny that I didn't even realize was there. Even though Millicent made some terrible personal decisions in her personal life and in her love life, she still designed the fucking creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. You know, she still blazed a huge trail. And I think right now, you know, everyone's afraid of cancel culture, which doesn't really fucking exist. And we have such a weird, complicated relationship with how we think about people we can hold both pieces you know we can look at people and say okay you did this important thing but you also did the shitty thing and like let's learn from that and it was a really incredible like i'm not a spiritual person i you know i'm not a religious person but it was really about as close as i get to that kind of experience and and um writing about her and finding things out about her and looking at her and and presenting her honestly, which was very hard for me. Normally when people write a biography, they're like, cool, I'm writing the story of of someone that people already know about. And that's the, like, you don't even care who the author is. You're like, oh, there's a biography of Madonna. There's a biography of Prince. I want to just buy it because I care about this person. I had to get people to care about someone that they had never even heard about, (laughs) which was very, uh, you know, it it was tough. So I was so, so protective and I wanted people to love her. But I realized that maybe if people read that they could have a crappy boyfriend and have a crappy relationship and still be worth writing about and still do amazing things milson patrick who is really mildred rossi who is really a bunch of other women but the truth is she's also milson patrick milson patrick was a um a identity that she created for herself and i don't think that an identity you create for yourself is any less valid than one that you were assigned to when you were born in fact i think it's more valid so at the end of all of it i realized that yes she fucking was milson patrick she was incredible she did a lot of a lot of things in her life. She was one of the first female animators at Disney. She did a lot of really, really cool things. People are always like, oh, well, how can we fix this? Can we give her a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame? What can we do for her? But, you know, the, she's gone. You know, the thing that we can do now is open the doors for everyone who is who is marginalized. And in this, that spirit of Millicent Patrick, welcome everybody into the world of film, into the world of art. And that's the best way, I think, to honor her. There's so much there that I want to speak to. But if Millicent had only ever done done the creature that's enough of a legacy that deserves to be celebrated but because you mentioned disney and i know people are gonna love this tie-in that's not the only iconic creature she helped design and i'm setting you up for this mallory but millicent also worked on when i was a kid the first movie i ever remember watching was fantasia and the first bit of horror the thing that got me falling in love with monsters and horror was the uh, night on bald mountain segment in fantasia i love night on bald mountain it terrified me i was obsessed with it when i was a kid so later in life when i found out that the, one of the things she worked on at disney was chernabog in the night on bald mountain sequence i lost my fucking shit i couldn't believe it i it's the coolest thing in the world to me so to me she's the queen of both animated monsters and live action monsters uh, the fact that she, she, I mean, she did, did so many amazing things. Uh, she's just, she's the queen to me. She's the queen of my world. That is so inspiring because I think we're at this place right now. And we actually have been talking about that issue a lot uh, recently. And I, and I too uh, hate this whole uh, bullshit notion of cancel culture. And I, I've been speaking a lot about like the fact that like, it's like, wait a second, I come from a community of recovery. I'm sober. That's my personal journey. I, I don't talk about how I'm sober or, or, you know, um, it's not my job to um, 
sort of be a poster child for sobriety, that's for sure. But everything in my universe is about forgiveness, redemption, evolution, growth, you know. And when you look at people that you admire for something like creating this fantastic costume and and being, you know, a woman in a world dominated by men to this day. To the degree they didn't give her a credit on the movie because they would only list a man. That is so twisted and and fucked up. And honestly, I'll tell you, like, when I was making All About Evil, which is my feature film, looking for a gore and special effects makeup team, we literally went out to find women because I wanted as many department heads to be women as possible. And I'll tell you, it was not easy finding (laughs) women who could do the kind of gore effects. And it's because they weren't given opportunities. They didn't have a resume. They didn't have the experience. And one of the things we got to do was go to, um, speaking of Guillermo del Toro, this does tie in a little bit. We got to go to, oh God, Mike, what is his name? I forget. This is the the creature guy who does uh, Guillermo's like monsters. Yeah, Mike Hill. He's my friend. <laughs> okay, is that his name? Yeah, yeah. So Mike Mike did all of the creature work for. He created the asset for Shape of Water. He also did all the stuff for Guillermo's newest uh, Nightmare Alley. Uh, if you ever like see photos of uh, Guillermo's house and you see like the like you know the realistic sculptures of you know Ray Harryhausen and the bride and and the monster and stuff, that's all for Mike. So the the one I'm thinking of had created oh mike alizade yes thank I you also know him. okay <laughs> <laughs> he runs spectral motion who also does like they did all the stuff at hellboy yes. uh they're fantastic uh, you, you know i don't want the emails to come in like no peaches you don't even know no mike alizade is amazing okay, so spectral motion's amazing i met mike alizade through my friend darren stein who was friends with his wife who was running the company with him and so having a woman bring us in and show us what they can do. And she is a major player in that company uh, and was fantastic. Now we could not afford them. Uh, and and they, they were they were yeah. very but they were very very sweet. Not only when we when we hired our makeup special effects person Aurora, who was fabulous, a French woman who did all of the gore and everything. You know, she ended up talking to Mike's wife, who was so sweetly sneaking things out of the company and mailing them up to us. So a lot of our body parts and and other things in the background of the film did come from Mike's company. I, I will say this. There are women working in this field right now, and they are still a minority. Um, But I guess my point is this. This is a very long-winded talk. Um, To judge a woman or anyone, like look at the movie Feud, and people judge Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, and I just want to be like, fuck you. You know, the, the way they had to work, the way they, ha- what they had to deal with to survive, the bullshit that they had to deal with in the world that where they were coming up as, as products of a studio system. Judy Garland as well, the shit she had to deal with. Um, it doesn't compare to anything the male performers had to deal with. They, they never had to deal with this stuff. So, so when, when looking at a woman who's uh, uh, achieved something like this, if you're going to focus on her flaws, that in its in and of itself is misogyny, you know. Because I'm mm-hmm. sorry, they they had it ten times as hard. And I love that you, you oh, put yeah, well, it that way. Well, that's the thing that makes me laugh is that for so long, at least commercially, and I want to say commercially because you know people who are not straight white guys have always been in horror. They've always they've had, they have a legacy here, you know, from the very very beginning. It's only the things that have been sold that have been presented to the public. So that's not to, what I'm about to say is not that you know we we haven't been here. 
Uh, but it's just so funny to me. It's like, what do straight white guys know about horror? Like, what the fuck do you have to be afraid of? <laughs> that is that, that's actually a really good point that I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of. It's like, you know, even the ones that are very, very successful, uh, if you really scratch the surface, you know, Stephen King is an outsider. Wes Craven was a gentle, gentle empath who didn't understand yes. the world, right? Like, so the best ones tend to be oddballs anyway. And, and to, to your point about uh, uh, women being written out, it, it really reminds me, and I know, Michael, you could probably speak to this better than I can, but the fact that Mary Shelley, in many ways, is not given the proper credit to this day that that she should be given, you know, as a horror author. I'm sure that Mallory can weigh in on this, but Mary <laughs> Shelley not only invented science fiction, Mary Shelley was the original goth of which everybody else is, is modeling <laughs> themselves after. I mean, more than just creating <laughs> Frankenstein, yeah. this woman, like kept the calcified heart of her lover <laughs> after he yeah. died. And like, come on, like there's no, you. we yeah. all aspire to be the badass that is Mary Shelley. But I love what you both are saying because when Peaches, when you were talking about the, the Fangoria Weekend of Horrors and going and it's a bunch of like straight dudes in black shirts and that permeates a lot of our culture, the, the industry meetings we go in and things. But Mallory is absolutely right. They may flock to the genre and they have a stake in the genre. I'm not discounting anyone anything. But without the otherness, without us to make the stories from which to pull on, there is no horror to be had. Because women who have been marginalized by, well, women are marginalized by society, so all women, they can reach into something that those guys don't know about. Mm -hmm. Queer people can reach into something that those guys don't know about. People of color can reach into things that those people don't know about. And from there come the seeds of horror. Oh, for sure. That's what, like, it's always so funny to me, you know, this is the classic thing of like, oh, a woman, usually a white woman, walking down the street at night and she's scared and she gets killed by a slasher and then everyone leaves the theater. Like, the white guys leave the theater and they throw their popcorn away and then they, like, go to the fucking bar or whatever. Like, if you were a trans woman, if you are just a woman in general, if you were a, a gay man, if you are a person using a wheelchair you were feeling that same feeling in real life when you were walking home i'm like how is it possible that they've dominated the genre like what do you even know about this feeling and the way that they're responding to it you know this is really fascinating and and someday you know i think we we, we should go deeper but like there is a difference in the response to these things and the way that we view them and so i do say this my fandom is different than your fandom. And and I do judge their fandom a little bit because I wasn't titillated by um, naked women in a shower getting their, you know, um, bodies slashed up. You know, that wasn't why I was tuning in to watch these movies. And I'm sorry, but if you look at a lot of those films, that, that part of that exploitive misogyny that, that is used in those films to sell tickets is why you bought a ticket. I actually am going there because I identify with the victim. I identify with the monster. I have real life fear going on because I'm getting beaten up at school because I'm a sissy. There's a few movies where, you know, you go, okay, this is kind of a pure horror movie. But most of them I had to kind of overlook uh, a lot of homophobia, a lot of racism, a lot of misogyny, oh, yeah. and yet still was a fan. You know, I still can argue that I'm a fan of these things. I think we look at the camp of of something like Sleepaway Camp, we can talk about how damaging and horrible and homophobic and transphobic, I mean, it is awful, but yet there is still a way for me to say, but I love that movie, and, and there's a reason I love yeah. it. And 
it gets very complicated. But I do judge some of their fandom because I'm like, oh, no, you like these movies because you're gross. <laughs> the thing is, we can all hold both pieces. And I would actually argue that people like us like these movies more. There's mm-hmm. a great writer. That, he's a nonfiction author and a poet, Hanif Adurki. He talks about it with music, but I'm using it about horror movies, is that that's how you show you love something. Like, if we didn't love these movies, we wouldn't bother criticizing them. Why would we take the time to try to find the good and look at ways that they could be better? Like, if we weren't real fans and we didn't care, we would just ignore them and watch something else. But because there's something in these movies that speak to us and we love the genre so much, we are looking to interrogate them and and to find ways to make them better and to point out the flaws. It was just the way that I, you know, same thing with me writing about Millicent. You know, you, you can, that's the true mark of love is being able to look at something and see the good in it and see how it can be better and also take the time to see how it's not good. And bringing it back to Millicent, to Creature from the Black Lagoon, This movie is emblematic of all the talking points that we've had today because movies that are of the moment and are forgettable and don't have anything to say stay there. That this movie was made in the late 50s and we're still talking about the environmental issues, the colonialism issues, the incurring upon other people's territory, the otherness. But because of the circumstances of the behind the scenes, we're also talking about that. And... Mm-hmm. A lot of this stemmed from your relationship with the movie changing as you wrote the book. You're several books past Lady from the Black Lagoon. You've had some more breathing room. How have you continued to grow with this topic? It's been really great because now that I, it's a, it's sort of, you know, I don't want to, like, like I said, I don't want to say right. behind me because Millicent is like, I mean, I right. still have the tattoo. You know, I, I still, I don't the, the photo that's behind me that listeners can't see, but you two can, is, is of Millicent. I still have keep a picture of her. She still means a lot to me. There's more people in the world who know about her. I'm able to see her legacy a bit more. And one, because people, you know, I've done a ton of events. I, I, wasn't, I went on tour twice for it. I People email me still every week. I've been able to, instead of focus on the movie itself and Millicent herself and sort of see the ripples, the cultural ripples. Shape of Water literally would not exist without Creature from the Black Lagoon. Parts of Monster Squad would not exist without Creature from the Black Lagoon. It is still so pervasive. He is still so pervasive in culture. Millicent's work is so pervasive. It's such an important horror work. Creature, like we said, Creature was made in the 50s, but people are still making fan art and new, new posters. He still is having such an impact. And... And that was all Millicent. She that was all her design, and it's really, really cool to see how monsters and how movies still sort of stay get stuck in our cultural <laughs> craw and continue to shape things and influence things. And uh, I just love it. I I, lo- I love monsters so much, and I love seeing how they evolve in our in our culture. You know, he went from being something really scary to now. I think creature is a figure of love for all of us. A lot of the fan art I see now is like. People people smooching creature and you know very cutesy things like he's become this like very lovable icon which i think is really really interesting to me that is people embracing their otherness embracing otherness in general and and instead of being afraid of it like they were in the 1950s uh they're now they're just ready to give it a smooch Oh, I wish I had worn... Michael, you've seen it before. I have a very cutesy uh, Japanese creature from the Black Lagoon uh, t-shirt where he's, you know... What's that called where the cat's doing the wave like this, you know? Uh, oh, that's so cute. Yeah, so I have one of those, but it's creature. Um, oh. and, and and I was just thinking, and, and we talked about this before, but just the, the sheer amount of creature tattoos I've seen when you're in our community. 
And without even knowing the connection to Millicent, a lot of my um, friends who have creature tattoos happen to be women. Mm -hmm. There's something there for sure. I think a lot of it has to do with the way that he's portrayed as the monster. He's a hot little freak. Yes, everything that you're saying for sure. (laughs) When you rewatch this film, especially if you haven't seen it in a while, like I hadn't, everything that you mentioned, of course, Shape of Water and and a lot of the Monster Squad, but then even things like Jurassic Park and uh, Jaws, of course, and so many movies. I mean, even the shots, some of them are just taken right from this film and, Mm -hmm. and the ideas and the concepts, you know, so do yourself a favor and, and, and rewatch it. But um, as we're wrapping up, I wanted to mention before I forget, this is episode one of season two of our podcast. And Michael and I really wanted you to be our featured yes. guest uh, for a number of reasons. And one of those is to celebrate what contribution you have made Oh, don't make me cry. <laughs> well, and it's no no accident that we're premiering in um, Women in Horror Month. So for those of you who don't know, uh, February is Women in Horror Month, of course, as, as well as being Black History Month. It is both. And so having you be our first big special guest for our return, our season two premiere, I, I, we cannot thank you enough because this is what we wanted to highlight. This was so much fun. I mean, Michael, I always love talking to you about movies, but this has been just an absolute blast. And Mallory, before we go, I know for a fact that you recently were up at one of Peaches and My's favorite spots, Oasis in San Francisco, promoting your new book. Can you tell us a little bit about Girly Drinks? And also, you have a new book coming called Girls Make Movies, which I feel like fits very into the conversation we had today. Yes. Yes. Uh, So Girly Drinks is my world history of women and drinking because I I am a cocktail nerd. I had a very similar experience with cocktails as I did with Creature from the Black Lagoon is that anything I get into, I want to see myself in. My whole career is me just trying to see myself in the places that I love. And when I got into cocktails, I realized that there were no cocktail history books that talked about women, really featured anybody that wasn't, you know, again, a straight old white guy. And the nerdier I got about cocktails, the more it bothered me. So I was complaining to my best friend about it. And she said, well, you know what book you need to write next. (laughs) And so I did. So that's Girly Drinks. And it's truly worldwide. It's from the beginning of like the dawn of civilization until now. I hate history books that are like, okay, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, quick stop in England, and then white America, baby. Like, that's all history. So it drives me nuts. So it's really worldwide. It's all, every single country, every single uh, part of the world in all time periods. And then I just sold my third book, which is my first middle grade book. I had to write a whole book without swearing, which was very difficult. It is for <laughs> girls. It's, a, I believe, and I, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it is the world's first choose-your-own-adventure-styled book uh, that's nonfiction. Oh, nonfiction. Choose-your-own-nonfiction. It's about a fictional movie that doesn't exist. It's called Sasha vs. Zombies, a teenage makeup artist, and she has to escape a zombie horde by making up her friends as zombies and trying to escape. But the way that you go through the book is you make decisions, and that's the choose-your-own-adventure part. Like, oh, do you want your zombies to be CGI, or do you want them to be practical? And that's how you flip to different pages. And as you go throughout the book, you meet all of the people, all the different crew members on a production, and they tell you what they do, and they tell you how they got there, and they help you get to the next stage of filmmaking like when I was a kid I used to sit 
five inches away from the TV and watch the end crawls and go, what's a best boy? What's a grip? And like you hear a lot about young boys who are given video cameras and stuff. I was never given any of that stuff. Filmmaking never seemed like a thing that I could do. And I wanted to make this book that I wanted when I was seven, you know, that would show me how to get there. The book's also filled with little tidbits of film history. And I wanted to show like, hey, here's the, the first woman who did this. And here's a, that, you know, that movie, you know, here's a woman who did this other thing. And I really wanted to show real film history that was very diverse and very exciting. And like, you know, 10 year olds would understand. There was a few times it was really tough because I wanted to use the large Marge jump scare as an example from the Pee Wee Herman movie. And my editor had to be like, Mallory, no one under the age of 30 has ever seen that movie. And I was like, no. My friend Jen Vaughn is illustrating it. So it's going to be full of really cool illustrations of like what a Steadicam rig looks like and what a dolly track is and all, you know, really show young girls and, you know, anyone who wants to read it in a fun, accessible way, how movies are made and that women, that girls make movies. That's why the title exists. Um, So I'm really excited about it. I, uh, I hope that girls read it and want to get into the filmmaking world. That is awesome. And I can tell you, Mallory, you've already sold two books because I have two tween nieces. Oh, yeah. As you were describing it, I was just like, oh, my God. You know, they're not easy to shop for at all. Um, (laughs) I will send you two signed copies. Oh, well, I want and I will pay full price, you know, so that you know, no, no, no. no. (laughs) Um, But that is so great. Congratulations. I feel like we're all doing our part to continue to open these doors so that this industry that we love so much can be forever changed. And hey, look at what's happening. You let women make movies. You let black folks make movies. You let openly queer people make movies. They make money. Yeah. You know, yes. the ho- they Hollywood's make money finally and they listening. Make amazing things. <laughs> it's true. You know, yes. and now all of a sudden people are scrambling yes. to, oh my gosh, you know, we need the next get out. Okay, <laughs> yeah. well, maybe instead of giving one person all this money, let's just give a ton of people. Let's get yes. let's get everybody in here. Every project that I do, everything that I work on is all about opening, the, like you said, opening those doors, making it more accessible to everybody. That's how you know we love this industry more than anyone because we're, we're we're the ones working to make it better. It's true. Yeah. Mallory, thank you so much for taking the time for bringing your stories, your insight, and just your awesomeness. I appreciate you. Uh, I know Peaches and I were thrilled to have you here to talk Creature with us, to talk Millicent with us, to talk life. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for having me. It's really been a blast. <laughs> Well, that was simply wonderful. I just loved Mallory O'Mara. And uh, I cannot thank you enough, Michael, for bringing her on the show. She was the perfect guest to kick off season two with. That was fabulous. Oh, I couldn't agree more, Peaches. Uh, You know, when we decided to do Creature from the Black Lagoon, I immediately knew that we had to talk to Mallory because... Well, she wrote the book on it. She knows so much about this topic, but she's so passionate about this topic. Her passion for this film led her to uncover a bit of horror history 
that may have stayed dormant, if not for her interests. And that's powerful. And that speaks to exactly what we're all about here at Midnight Mass. When you take your love of a movie beyond just watching it, this idea of devotion, she is a member of the creature cult, and I would argue now a high priestess of the creature cult, because she was not content just seeing it on the screen once she discovered that one photo that changed her life. She needed to know about it, and she gave a gift to the rest of the world in the process. Before she ever even had the idea to write the book, which she acknowledges wasn't really her idea, it was someone else's idea. But the reason that person had this idea is because of how great it is to hear Mallory's own story with this discovery and how it spoke to her as a young woman who grew up a girl who loved horror movies and did not see herself reflected anywhere in the creation or the world of horror movies. Uh, as she said, she loved, you know, all of those makeup artists. And, you know, of course we love Dick Smith and Tom Savini and all of those fantastic creators of magic. But she's exactly right that, that there weren't, you know, women um, being celebrated in the pages of Fangoria magazine or at conventions, you know, for these sorts of creations. I love that because she not only wrote the book, which is a gift to uh, herself in terms of just being able to like tell this woman's story and to get to know her more, but it's a gift to all these people who really had been, in many ways, this woman had been kind of erased. Like, yeah. I, I mean, we're horror fans. I didn't know who Millicent was. And then I loved that she talked about the complicated nature of discovering that someone who you want to celebrate so much isn't necessarily 100% worth celebrating. And I haven't read the book, which I, I plan to read. I can't wait to read it. So I don't really know um, how nefarious it gets, but it was definitely, you know, it, it, talking to her about that struggle of going like, well, you know, people are complicated and she wasn't necessarily 100%, you know, of a hero. And I th think that's an important thing. And it's something that we return to a lot in discussing these movies because, you know, a lot of the cult films we talk about, let's face it, all of the cult films we talk about have a subversive element to them. And if you are engaging in subversive material, there's a chance that the people who make it are also in some way subversive or are just actually people. To be human, to be alive in some way is subversive to somebody else. And this idea that our heroes are hermetically sealed pop icons or, you know, cult icons is more messy than recognizing a human being with flaws and all made this. Some flaws we can live with, some flaws we can't. But you have to recognize that that's part of the package. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think it's something that's very current as far as what people are talking about, because, you know, as uh, quote unquote, cancel culture <laughs> continues to be a thing, whatever whatever that is and whatever you take it to, to be. I think what we're realizing, this isn't the first or last time we'll, we'll sort of talk about this. There's going to be a point where nobody's left, you know, and, you know, that, and, and to acknowledge that people are complicated. People live lives that where they make mistakes or do shitty things while also doing wonderful things and great things. And um, I just really liked how she spoke to that. And I cannot wait to read the book, which you've read already. I have. Uh, you know, I was lucky enough when Mallory first had the book published and I was doing my old show, Dead for Filth. Mallory was one of my guests and we had a good long 90 minute conversation about the book as it just came out. And I remember at the time and now just being so uh 
amazed. It's a revelatory story. And, you know, it, it's because it's not just Millicent's story, it's Mallory's story in many ways, too. And there's just something about it that I think if you grew up with these movies and embraced them because they represented your otherness in some way, and then you got that extra morsel that made it mean all the more to you, the idea that you grew up reading Clive Barker and then he comes out and you as a gay kid are like, oh my God, this titan of horror, which already means so much to me, is like me. Yeah. If you, as young Mallory, are who love Creature from the Black Lagoon, but also love creature effects and makeup, then see that one of the creatures that you love was made by a woman after reading Fangoria for years and never seeing women special effect artists, that means something. And so I, I have always really dug this story. I love this book. I love the work that she did on it. And I think that it's important because as we go forward in cult film history and film history, there will be more revelations. There will be more discoveries. There will be more questions and, and conflicts. But I think the reality is, is we all hunger for that representation. We know what it means when you barely have it. We know what it means when you don't have it at all. And, you know, for as much as visibility and representation has gotten better since we were kids, there's still much more to be done. There's people who have barely seen themselves, and there are people who are still waiting. So these stories are the light at the end of the tunnel. If you don't see yourself in art... I guarantee you're there. The story just needs to find you, and you need to find the story. And when you do succeed, you know what I'm talking about, Michael, because you live in Hollywood. You know what it's like. When you do succeed, and you're a woman, or you're a person of color, or you're a queer person, I almost feel like you owe it to yourself and your community to be better than the forces that prevented you from succeeding for so long. You fought, you clawed your way to get to a place where you could have some success. Turn around and hire women, hire people of color, hire queer people. I know and you know that sometimes within minority communities, there is this fear of there being too many of us and I, I don't wanna upset the status quo, so I'm not gonna help my queer friend. And I hate that that exists, but it does. And um, we talked about how um, in All About Evil, we went on the search to uh, hire a special effects, you know, gore makeup artist uh, who was a woman. And it was Aurora Berger who did a fabulous job. But I also wanted to mention that the uh, lead special effects makeup uh, gore meister for Terror Vault for the first two years was also a woman named Danny Spinks, who's a lesbian and fabulous. God, I, I don't know where I'd be without lesbians. Michael, you know this. Like, it's all all dykes behind the scenes running my show. Um, so Danny actually is one of the people I know who has a massive creature from the Black Lagoon tattoo. So uh, it, it all kind of comes full circle, right? So Full circle, yeah. Danny, you're probably listening to this. And if you're not, shame on you. <laughs> we went from a very behind-the-scenes interview with someone who uh, knew a lot about uh, this person behind the scenes and was a fan. But I think what's interesting about our next interview is it's really about hardcore fandom. Yes. So this next interview is with the amazing cult filmmaker in his own right, Mark Bessinger, who I know through uh, horror movie circles. He made an amazing gay vampire movie called Bite Marks uh, back at the beginning of the 90s. He the, the 16 millimeter movie called Ninja Zombie, which has its own cult trajectory that you all should research. It's really fascinating. And Mark is somebody who 
has done a lot of queer art and genre art. And uh, for as long as I've known him, he also has carried a big torch for the creature in the franchise. You know, he loves not just only the creature from the Black Lagoon, but all the other universal releases in this line. And I knew that he would tell us quite a bit about that fandom and what growing up with this monster meant to him. And we're going to talk to him right now. And welcome back, listeners. Of course, you cannot have a cult film without the cult members who make it up. And luckily, today we are joined not only by an avowed super fan of the creature from the Black Lagoon, but he is the writer and director of the acclaimed gay vampire comedy Bite Marks, as well as the filmmaker behind a number of celebrated slices of queer cinema that include The Last Straight Man, Rhapsody, and Confessions. No stranger to cult cinema, in 1992, he made Ninja Zombie, a splat-tastic Super 8 film that was long thought lost for over 25 years until it was restored and released by Bleeding Skull in the American Genre Film Archive in 2018. He's a writer, director, producer, and so much more. Please welcome Mark Bessinger. Hi, Mark. Yay. Hi, Michael. Hi, Peaches. Hi. Thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell listeners one of the reasons that I thought of you when Peaches and I decided to do this episode is that you have quite a Gilman collection in your home. Like, there's literally a creature from the Black Lagoon shrine in your living room. And I would like to get into that. But maybe before we do, where did this begin? When did you first see this movie? started not with the creature from the black lagoon but it started with the sequel revenge of the creature i was six years old living in southern indiana and every afternoon there was a uh, a tv station out of louisville that would show a movie at three o'clock i was coming home from first grade i was in the first grade at the time i walk into our family room and my mother's sitting in a chair my mother likes horror movies too and she was sitting in a chair with my younger brother in her lap and she was watching revenge of the creature And I walked into the room and turned and looked at the TV just in time for that scene where the creature bolts out of the receiving tank straight into the camera. And there's a close-up of the woman screaming. And I was instantly hooked. I'm like, what is that? What is that thing? What's that creature? What is it? So the TV stations or the local TV stations out of Indianapolis, we had a horror movie host called Sammy Terry. And he showed horror movies every Friday night. So he would show Creature from the Black Lagoon. And that's where I got to see how it started. And then with the next two sequels, um, it just totally enthralled me. Because it just looked, I mean, it was the first horror movie I'd really ever seen. You know, being that age in that time period, I started out with the Universal classics. They were showing all the Universal films. And I'd watch Frankenstein and Dracula and the Wolfman. And I'm like, okay. Frankenstein's a guy in a suit, basically. Dracula's a guy in a tuxedo. The Wolfman has hair all over him, but you, if you look at his eyes, he still looks human. But the creature from the Black Lagoon looked like a monster. It did not, to me anyway, it did not look like a guy in a suit. It looked like a real thing, and that just captivated me because I'm like, oh, there are real monsters out there. It enthralled me and terrified me right from the beginning. I carried fear of the creature with me for many, many years. I love that story for a number of reasons, one of which is 
how similar is to my story. I was actually saying to Michael before we uh, jumped on that re-watching Creature of the Black Lagoon, I was reminded that my first exposure to the film was the sequel. And so then I actually went on the internet to look up um, and see if my memory was accurate. You know how sometimes you remember something from when you were a kid and you're like, mm-hmm. find out later that you just fucking made it all up or whatever. <laughs> so and that is especially true for me. For some reason, I, I'm a compulsive liar. So I went and checked it out. And sure enough, I had this memory of, and I found out it was 1982, which makes sense because I would have been like eight years old. And this is definitely was my, you know, I was obsessed with monsters. You know, I was obsessed with spooky things. And they were going to do a first ever televised screening of a 3D movie where you could get your 3D glasses at what wherever. And in my case, we got, we got them at 7-Eleven. Right, exactly. And I'll never forget, like, begging my mother to go get me those glasses. So we drove to 7-Eleven and I watched Revenge of the creature. So that was my first introduction. And I think because of that, like that experience of being young and excited about monsters and the sort of uh, the steps you had to take to get the 3D glasses, you know, probably had to buy a slushy or something, which is awesome, you know, <laughs> and um, watching it at home in 3D. And the 3D actually working, you know, like on TV. I remember like being like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. it's actually 3D. So you and I were both uh, introduced to it as a sequel. And then because I was so into it, I discovered the original and, and you know, kind of became more familiar with it. And I guess now that you mention it, I had never thought about the human component of it. But you're right that the creature is the least human of all the universal, you know, monsters. Like, he, he really is the most monstrous. Well, he's the, he's the most creature-ish, for sure. Well, you know what? He's the least human in appearance. Right. But when it comes to the spirit of the creature or, or, the, or empathizing with the creature, he, he really is kind of the most human, I think, because that's the whole thing about him. It's like he's an outsider he doesn't fit in with everybody else and he sees someone he falls in that he's in love with and but he can't have her you know and it's that that longing uh and unrequited unreturned love is something that i think also really connected with me at the time you know being gay and not out and Mm -hmm. having crushes that i knew i could never you know uh, act on I, I kind of felt, you know, after, I, you know, like I said, he, terrorized, he terrified me for years, but then I started feeling sim, simpatico with him. You know, I started thinking, oh, yeah, you can't, you can't have her and I can't have him. And I kind of, I understand what you're feeling, you know, and it kind of made me empathize with him a lot more. Um, yeah. But, you know, like I said, he did terrify me. I, there was for years after I saw it, I would not. We lived in a house with a really long hallway, and my bedroom was at the far, the, the far right door, and I would not go down that hallway <laughs> by myself. And we had a, a swimming pool uh, outside, an in-ground pool, and if I was swimming at night, I would, nothing would make me go in the deep end. Uh, <laughs> because even though I knew it was impossible, I just had this feeling, <laughs> you know, again, it... it that uh, it, 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 it works on what uh, director Jack Arnold and later Spielberg said concerning Jaws is that you don't know what's under the water. If you're swimming with your head above it, 
you have that innate fear of what's lurking underneath. And, and uh, that's what the creature kind of brought out in me at first. But then, like I said, as I kind of, as my gayness and I started dealing with it, or, um, I, really, I really felt for the, for the creature, you know, because I'm like, wow. He's just, I'm kind of like him. Well, I love that you bring up the queer correlation because I think that's something that when we look at at the classic monsters, especially in in, uh, relation to otherness, there's been a lot made about that because, you know, you you talked about the universal monsters specifically of which, you know, the the Gilman is one. But when you look at the array of them, Dracula's really the only actual monster who like steps out with malevolent intent. You know, the, 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 monster that Frankenstein builds is other because he was created this way and didn't ask to be this way. The Wolfman is kind of wrestling with internal stuff that comes out. The creature, at the end of the day, and the creature from the Black Lagoon is sort of the least monstrous character in the movie. These these humans come into his habitat and keep fucking around. And... um I don't know. I just, I, I really think it's interesting because we, we have that one character specifically whose whole goal by the end of the movie is, well, I want to make sure I kill this thing. And I'm like, oh, yeah, just go home. Leave it alone. You know? <laughs> oh, you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, that's something that, that's a, that's a, um, a, a thread that runs through all three of these films. Um, these people come into the creature's territory and they, all they want to do is trap them or, hurt him, shoot spears at him. You know, even the girl that he's in love with, there's a, there's a shot with her on the boat where she's smoking a cigarette, and then she just takes it out of her mouth and flicks it into the water. And, and we see it from underneath. You know, that, that cigarette hit the water, and then we pan down, and we see him looking at it. So, I mean, it did touch on environmental issues, too, but, it's, but the overall thing is you're coming into my place, you're hurting me, you're trashing the place you know and then in the sequel they come and they grab him and they take him to man's world where they torture him and under the guise of education and study uh and then in in the third movie they capture him and take him out to their world again and they do this experiment on him where they remove all of his scales and transform him into something else you know so the creature does not farewell with people in any of these films and it's not his fault and and as we know and we've discussed on this podcast over and over and over again that is why so many of us queer people identify with the quote-unquote monsters that are presented in the films and it does make me wonder especially re-watching it I was like kind of re-watching it going like uh, I don't even know if this is a queer identity like I would question anyone who watches the creature from the Black Lagoon and identifies more with the humans because they're just such assholes. And, you know, they're like, they're not likable. You know, like even you can see that they want, they're, they're trying to make them relatable or likable. And maybe in the 50s they were, I don't know. But, you know, watching it, at least, you know, today, I was like, God, you know, this is this is all about just how how much humans suck, you know, and, and have yeah. ru- ruined the world. And, you know, and how we we uh, our relationship with animals uh, is so twisted and fucked up and our relationship with the environment is so wrong. And, you know, it, it, it it's not even subtle, you know, and it's oh, a monster yeah. movie, and especially in the sequels. I mean, the humans in the sequels are really terrible. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking it must be a 50s 
cultural thing because if you watch Revenge of the Creature, for example, John Agar is incredibly sexist, and you know, he's always making these sexual jokes about like how women don't have to choose, men don't have to choose between a career and family, but women do, and and uh, he makes a joke about because he's late meeting the, the lead actress at one point. He says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I'm late, but you know, uh, I don't care what the joke writers say. Uh, men men take longer to dress, but we've got more to put on." I'm like. Um, okay, <laughs> but they, they they go and they get the creature and they put him on display and they give him electric shocks and the, you know, for the uh, purpose of like trying to teach him things and and in the and that's what ultimately almost kills him at the end of the movie. He's you know he's carrying the girl off, but then the the the, the professor yells stop at him through a bullhorn and the Pavlovian response makes him stop and. The girl gets away, and then they immediately start shooting him. I'm like, his interaction with humans is, is almost always what what leads to his demise, you know. And the third film, Creature Walks Among Us, it looks like it it's supposed to be final. We had mentioned when when I set up the intro that you have quite a collection of creature memorabilia. When did this movie kind of rise above the rest, or is it because it was the first horror film that you saw that it's always had a special place in your heart? And do you have like a favorite bit of creature uh, memorabilia amongst your things? Yeah, I have a couple pieces. I've got a, a life-size creature bust uh, that my husband Cliff got me for Christmas one year. Um, I really like that piece. Um, I have it displayed on the landing of my stairs. Uh, also, there's a, um, I think it was called a grave walker. It's the creature and his shoulders and arms. It looks like you're supposed to put it on the ground, so it looks like he's clawing out of the ground. But I put it on the wall in my family room over the mirror, so it looks like he's coming through the wall. Um, I really like that piece, too. One of the things I really liked that I don't have anymore is I used to have the creature from the Black Lagoon pinball machine. Oh, oh wow. wow! That's and such that a was good really one. that was a lot of fun to play. But then you know, after years go on, you start playing it less and less, and and you start thinking, you know, if I sold this, I could get something else. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid that's the that's the way it went. But uh, yeah, those are all really good pieces, and and you know, and these are just kind of like I wouldn't even call myself a serious collector. These are just things I've accumulated that I see and I like. Um, I've seen YouTube videos of massive collectors and the things they have are really astonishing, but yeah, I've got, I've got my, my pieces and, and, uh, I think I've got a replica, a replicant of the fossilized claw hand that they dig out of the rock at the beginning of the movie. I think my husband got me that too. And I, that's another piece I really like. Um, Oh, that's great! Uh, yeah. Well, with your like your that. your uh, husband buying you these gifts, does he also share a love for it, or just he loves you so much that he appreciates that you love it? Uh, it's the latter. He <laughs> <laughs> he's not really into horror at all, but he knows that I like it, and so yeah. he says, oh, he'll say, "Oh, if he sees something, oh, if Mark would really like this. He'll he'll get it for me, or he'll uh, get me things, start accumulating things for Christmas or my birthday or whatever." So. Um, that's kind of how it is. Yeah, that's sweet. I'm, I'm in a, a, a bit of a similar situation because I'm in a relationship with someone who, who appreciates it, but really he's not a horror fan the way I am. So his, his appreciation of it is just that I love it. One night, this was about a year after we were going together. One night he came to me and he said, I'm going to give you a present. And I said, what's that? He says, 
you can show me any horror movie you want, and I'll sit here and watch it with you. <laughs> okay. So I pull out Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, <laughs> and I showed that to him. And after it was over, he's like, what the hell was that? And he never gave me that gift again. Mark, I have to add, I have to uh, side with your boyfriend. That is not a gateway horror film. You know, I, 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 it, it's almost like you went for the jugular. You know, like that—that that is that is that is a movie you work someone up to. True, but in Mark's husband's defense, they are still together. So. That's true. That's true. Yes, we just celebrated our 25th anniversary last year. Oh, congratulations! That's amazing. Thanks. So, Mark, when Peaches was talking about her origin with the creature, she mentioned the 3D aspect of the sequel. And one of the things that is true of the original 1954 movie is that it was also made with the intent of being a 3D movie. Um, But, of course, when it was packaged uh, for late-night horror hosts and creature features, it it was broadcast 2D, and I think that's how a lot of people saw it. I'm sure you eventually did see the films in 3D, and do you have a preferred way to watch them? Uh, A few years ago, uh, Universal released the Creature from the Black Lagoon Legacy Blu-ray box set, and they had the Creature and Revenge of the Creature in 3D on those, and then they had it in the polarized 3D, not the anaglyph 3D with the red and cyan lenses. It was the polarized where you don't lose light from the image, and it stays black and white and when they were doing the restoration they tweaked the 3d to make it even better and the first time i sat down and started watching it in 3d i just started giggling in delight because it was just amazing and if i have a preferred way of watching creature it's that way because the 3d is truly spectacular revenge of the creature uh i watched it in 3d it's fun but like i said when they did the first one in 3d they went all out when they do that first shot and the camera zooms into that fossilized hand sticking out of the rock, that thing looks like it's going to touch you on the nose. And that was, <laughs> that was just amazing. And then you got fish, it looks like fish are swimming in your room and uh, just all kinds of stuff. It was just, it was great. So yeah, that's my preferred way to watch. It would be the 3D version of the first one. The second one, I could go either way. And then the third one was not released in 3D. It was not shot in 3D. Just having rewatched the first one, it was a great reminder of just how beautifully shot a lot of the underwater sequences are. And I was kind of imagining it in 3D and and and, and just knowing that 3D works so well for underwater sequences because, you know, if you're if you you want to give someone the feeling of being underwater, things are going to come floating at you or by you and um it just seems like it was a smart choice. Um, but one yeah. thing I was thinking while watching it was, okay, I have a few thoughts about this. And, and you, you brought up sort of the sexism of the sequel. And the first one, you know, we know it could have been much worse. There's only one woman in the whole, you know, the whole movie. And, and she's obviously the object of the creature's interest or affection. Um, right. And she's not as not, not as dumb as, as as they could have written her. But, but they really don't give her a whole lot, right? She's the girlfriend assistant of, you know... Uh, an important man or whatever. But I have to say, uh, what I do appreciate, the drag queen watching this movie (laughs) is, uh, you know, the queer who loves Hollywood films is, okay, they really, you know, for a horror movie, they really did not go very far, if at all, to make it look like these people were surviving on a boat in the Amazon. You know, her her makeup and her hair were pristine day after day. She worked look after look after look, a white fucking 
fucking bathing suit in a black lagoon. You know, like, <laughs> and I, I was thinking, like, she had those great 50s cone tits. Like, that's what should have been in 3D is, like, those fucking cone tits coming at you, you know? I do love that that part of this film is you know, it wouldn't be made that way today because no one would ever buy it. But somehow, you know, in the 50s, you could put out this movie and people weren't questioning like, huh. But it also begs the question, were the 50s that flawless? Because, you, you know, you watch something like Mad Men and it's like, I guess everyone looked flawless, you know. I don't know. Maybe it was just being a studio picture. Maybe they had more. They go, we want our, our she's our leading lady. We want her to look great, you know. Um the swimsuit, say what you will about it, it has become iconic. It's almost as much of a character in the movie as Creature is. Oh, it's um, fabulous. I've actually got the movie running in the background right now, and I'm, <laughs> I'm watching, I'm kind of glancing at it, and she's got these, yeah, she's got, she's flawless, she's got lipstick on, and she's got these Brooke Shields eyebrows that yes. are going on, man. She's like, and she's just, she's just glaring at people with them. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, but it's a 50s film, you know, they're not going to make her like a sweaty mess, you know, that's <laughs> not like, uh, no, uh, I watched, a few nights ago, I watched Jungle Cruise with uh, Emily Blunt, and she was a sweaty mess, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Julia Adams is, looks really good in this film. All the, all the guys are sweaty messes, but she, you know, they're not going to let her do that. But it's that, like, 1950s, like, Universal Studios sweat where, you know, just someone, like, put some glycerin on them. Yeah. And, like, just a, li- a little bit of, like, muss on, th- on their face so they look dirty. Uh, yeah, they've got a nice sheen going, but it's they, not, you know, they don't, there's no beads. <laughs> and let's all agree, because I think the three of us on this this chat can agree that the men's bathing suits are quite nice as well. Absolutely. You know, I, they, they, they were that 50s high, high cut bathing yeah. suit, you know, which, you know, you could, I mean, I, I almost feel like I saw a testicle or two, you know. And you may have. That was the, that was the true creature in the Black Lagoon. <laughs> oh, I wish. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Legacy because this is one of the later entries in the Universal Monster Pantheon. And, uh, you know, Dracula and Frankenstein and the Invisible Man, they, they all come from existent properties that have since passed in the public domain. But Universal uh, created the Gill Man, and and they own arguably the rights to him. Uh, And as such, even though Dracula and Frankenstein and like all get a lot of derivative films, when people do their own homages to the creature from the Black Lagoon, they have to take a lot more liberty because it can't be rooted in this lore. And so we get things like the humanoids from the deep or Island of the Fishmen or uh, Guillermo del Toro's Shape of Water. And I'm wondering, Mark, do you have any favorites of the the Gilman exploitation, the things that came in the wake of this? Definitely Humanoids from the Deep, which I think takes one of the core elements of the creature, that is that he wants to, he wants this woman that's his mate, and Humanoids from the Deep just ran with that. You know, it's like, right. you've got these mutated salmon men, and all they want to do is mate with women, and of course it being a Roger Corman production, they do. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but I like that film. I like the designs of the of the monsters in it. It's actually shot in a scary way. I like the uh, the attack on the carnival at the end, um, and there's some really fun moments throughout. Uh, the uh, the guy who's using a puppet to talk a woman to take her blouse off is really funny, and I love humanoids in the deep. 
Another one from the kind of same era that I that I like, although it's not as good. It's a little drier uh, and a little harder to sit through. But I really like the she creature. Oh yes, which is kind of like a female version, that. but it's yeah, of it. But uh, it's you know that movie was about a hypnotist who could take this woman and regress her to the point where uh, to to a, a past life where she was a prehistoric fish creature, and which would then. Uh, take physical form, come out of the ocean, and murder people that the hypnotist didn't like. The design of that thing was was really funky and kind of fun, and although stupid, but still fun. Um, the Gill Man in uh, the Monster Squad, which is purposely derivative of Creature from the Black Lagoon, that has a, that's a good design too. Um, although I felt yeah. like they they offed him a little too easily. But um, also another one I really like is uh, there's a film called The Monster of Piedras Blancas, uh, yeah. which has uh, an amphibian man in it. And uh, the design of it is pretty good. And it really plays like a really fun B-movie, B-monster film. And there's a scene where it comes out of a store carrying a guy's uh, disembodied head. It's kind of shocking for the time. But that's also a good one. But those are some of my favorites. I have not seen Shape of Water, so I cannot comment on it. But What? Okay, <laughs> Mark. Okay, I have to. I have to ask why. Just because I'm. I'm thinking. I was. I was just waiting and waiting, waiting. Like, what did he think of the Shape of Water? Because you know, <laughs> I've had so many people say to me, "You have to watch the Shape of Water," but it's just something I haven't gotten around to. Interesting. It does beg a question because the Shape of Water actually came out of Guillermo del Toro had planned to make a creature from the Black Lagoon movie. And when he couldn't secure the rights from Universal, he went off and wrote this other movie, which, you know, worked out for him. He won an Oscar for it. Um, And I love that he, like all three of us in this chat, was a monster kid who loved this character so much that dreamed... He dreamed of making movies of his own, and, and it took him to this place. And obviously, he loved the creature from the Black Lagoon. So, with that in mind, as someone who has been sitting with a love of the Gill Man for your whole life, what would you want to see done with this creature that hasn't been done yet? I would love to see them do a new movie, but not a remake. I would say let's do do a reboot, but it could still be another sequel. At the end of Creature Walks Among Us. It looks pretty final that the creature's going to die because he escapes. But, you know, like I said, they have done these surgeries on him. They've removed his gills. They found out he had lungs, so they, they got his lungs working. And as, But as a result, he can't breathe in water anymore. There's one point where he tries to go back into the water, but he starts drowning, and they have to give him oxygen. And at the end of the film, he escapes, and he's standing there looking at the ocean and on the beach, and he starts walking toward it. And we fade to black. So it's imp- the implication is he's going to go back into the water and he's going to drown and die. But if there was a way to, you know, make some kind of explanation that it, that, that didn't happen, that he survived, I would love to see another creature movie. But I'm not sure what kind of a scenario that I'd like to see him in. I, I, I'd almost want to see the same kind of themes happening where he's not the monster humanity is. Um, I, I have an idea to pitch to you, Mark. <laughs> And maybe with the, with the current climate uh, problems we're having, they could really amp up the environmental message there. But uh, yeah, Peaches, what would, your, what would your idea be? I think you're completely correct. And I think that that's, that's the kind of reboot we should see. And I also think it should be in 3D. But I was sitting here and I was thinking about the, ori- <laughs> the original film. And one of the things that, you know, um, 
I kind of wondered while I was watching it is they find the hand, of course, at the beginning, which, you know, is millions of years old. And so we know that this creature, this species has been around. Why not sort of like have some sort of earthquake or whatever that unlocks some sort of rock where like thousands of them have been living? You know, because why is there only one? You know, if they've existed, how how do they exist for all these millions of years? You know, are are they super, super old and he's the only one left? Or are there more of them? And are they reproducing? Well, the existence of the hand being millions of years old also, you know, suggests that you could do a creature story at any point in history. And all of the movies that we've had have been set in contemporary times, you know, contemporary for when the movies were released. But, like, where's my creature from the Black Lagoon movie set during, you know, the 1600s? Or have Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo with the creature from the Black Lagoon. That's what I want to see. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Alan Moore, who wrote the comic book of uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, at the end of the comics, uh, he, there would usually be, like, a two or three uh, prose short stories that he would write that involved other fictional characters. And in one of them, without naming the creature specifically, he wrote a story about these big game hunters who went into the Amazon and they shot a gill woman. And so it kind of implied that that was the creature's mate. They killed it. They took the body away. And that's why the creature is like longing for a new mate when the movie comes around. So I don't know if they do something like, you know, if they would do like maybe a big budget version of it, like they did with uh, the mummy with Brendan Fraser yeah. Um, um, I don't know. I think there are a lot of good stories out there that could be told. I think you guys' ideas were really good. I'd go see any of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for humoring my Werner Herzog idea. That was re- re- really, really not all that brilliant, but I appreciate it. Um, Mark, we are so you know grateful that you came and shared your love of the creature from the Black Lagoon with us today. Uh, you know, just listening to you talk and your enthusiasm and how you have carried this movie with you your whole life. One of the questions I ask a lot of our guests is, uh, you know, when when you live with a cult film for a long time, your relationship with the movie changes. And I often ask guests how, but you even spoke to that. Like, here's this movie you loved for all these years, and then you you recently watched it in 3D, and it gave you a new appreciation of it. And I just love that you're finding new ways to celebrate this film all these years later. It started out, this movie terrified me like no other movie had ever done. As time went on, I got to empathize with the creature, understand the creature. And now the movie is like, it's like an old friend. It's, it's like a, it's an old friend. It's a babysitter. It's a caregiver. If I'm sick and in bed with a cold or something, I put the movie on the background, you know, to give me comfort and keep me company. It's become like this comfort film now that I get pleasure out of and and just get that warm feeling when it's playing. And, and, that's what it has uh, developed into for me. I love that all of us really come from from the same place with it and really relate to the creature the same way. And what I've noticed, especially lately in the cult horror monster fandom, that the creature is getting a lot of 
artwork and people are very inspired by the creature. I've noticed a lot more creature tattoos recently and a lot of women who love horror embracing creature. I was thinking about a um, woman I, I work with who is, uh, her name's Danny Spinks and she does makeup and gore and special effects and she worked on our Terror Vault show and how she has this incredibly giant, gorgeous creature tattoo and like, you know, anything creature from the Black Lagoon she wants. And, and, and I love that. I love that we all identify with this character. And like you say, I mean, it sounds strange, but like how a monster for some of us can be like a warm blanket. Yeah. A few years ago, there was a horror a store in Burbank called Creature Features, and they did this um, showcase where they asked artists to create something related to Creature from the Black Lagoon that they could showcase in a, in a show. And there were all kinds of paintings and drawings and stuff, but two things stood out for me. One thing was somebody did a life-size version of Uncle Gilbert from Mon the Monsters TV show, because that was when the Creature from the Black Lagoon made a guest appearance on the Monsters as their Uncle Gilbert. <laughs> and he wore like a jacket and a bowler and a, a scarf around his neck and all that kind of stuff. But the one thing that really stood out to me, someone made a life-size Creature from the Black Lagoon statue out of glass, colored glass beads. Wow. And it wow. was breathtaking. If I could have backed up a truck to the door and, and stolen it, I would have. It was, <laughs> it, was, I, it was truly beautiful. The fact that someone took the time to make that, I thought was just wonderful. It sounds like uh, a 25th anniversary gift, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got my 25th anniversary gift uh, last year with a collection of rubber masks that were uh, Scooby-Doo villains. So that oh, well, my, that's that's wonderful. That was my yeah. 25th anniversary gift. So, Mark, before we head off, you know, when I introduced you, I listed a lot of your amazing credits, but I know that you rarely sit idle. Is there anything new that uh, listeners can be keeping an eye out for? I have sold a TV series to Hear TV. It is going to be a gay-themed science fiction show. The, the pilot episode will be debuting in a film, I think, in this summer. Also, I'm looking to do a couple new features this film, uh, one of which is a new version of the 1922 play The Cat and the Canary, because uh, Old Dark House Murder Mysteries is another genre that I really love. So I have a script written and we're in the process of uh, looking for location. And uh, also on YouTube, I've got a show uh, called The Ghost in the Graveyard. Congratulations. We'll be for sure be looking for the uh, TV show and be uh, rooting for the film. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time, Mark, uh, to wade into the Black Lagoon with us today and, and share your love of the Gill Man. Any opportunity to talk about the Gill Man. <laughs> And that was the sensational Mark Bessinger. I absolutely love uh, that Mark's journey with the creature began in childhood because, you know, we have so many stories from our guests that talk about seeing these movies when they were very young, seeing it with a parent, seeing it with a sibling. And then because it just captured them in that one moment, they carry it with them for the rest of their lives. And listening to Mark, you know, that's true. You know, he, he saw Revenge of the Creature while his mom was watching it. And now years later, he himself is a filmmaker, admits that, you know, his journey into monsters begins somewhat around this time. It's influenced his life. He carries a, a torch for this and has a lot of thoughtful things to say about it. And it all began in that one moment. You never know. 
You never know. I love it. I personally was really thrilled to have my own memory of this validated as well because I very much have the memory of uh, getting those 3D glasses at 7-Eleven stored away. And God, I mean, I was a little kid. I mean, that was a long, long time ago. But I can remember being so excited by that, one, the promotion, and two, the idea that we could I could watch something in 3D at home on TV, you know, in the early 80s. But it was also Revenge. It was also the sequel that they did that with. Uh, so that was fun uh, to kind of go down that, that memory lane. Maybe I'm not as obsessed with Creature as I am Bride of Frankenstein. I love Creature. And I actually love all the monsters, um, but Bride of Frankenstein, you know, if I had to choose one, hello, uh, it's obviously gonna be Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. But, you know, I do understand the appeal and the attraction, and I kind of love the obsession with choosing a particular monster. And also, I love the conversation about all the influence it's had. I mean, particularly, we've gotten to hear a lot about how, you know, obviously, this film uh, inspired, you know, the ma modern master of monsters is, I mean, without a doubt, Guillermo del Toro, right? And Shape of Water is just one movie. In fact, it's it's the most unique of his films, but most of his movies are monster movies. What I love, though, is it allows us to explore the definition of monster. One thing that Mallory, Mark, you and I all agreed on is that the creature may be a monster, but it is not the villain of this story. And you know that Guillermo del Toro took that to heart in creating Shape of Water because it's a love story between that fish person and that woman. And the monsters, again, are the bureaucratic evils of humanity. And let's face it, kudos to Guillermo del Toro because... While I think a lot of people watch The Shape of Water and, and really understand its beauty, there are those of us that go, oh, but what's really great about it, what's really fucking transgressive, is he was powerful enough to make a beautiful, earnest, gorgeous movie where a fucking monster has consensual sex with a beautiful woman. The audacity, the sheer uh, shock of it all is just Fabulous. And if you can't connect the dots to why this is important to queer people, then uh, you're just not thinking hard enough. Well, and it's important, too, that he kept the monster a monster. Because, you know, in every yeah. other Beauty and the Beast allegory, before the beauty gets the beast, he has to become like her. Oh, yeah. And this says, oh, no. It's their otherness that brings them together. Yeah. We don't often talk about stuff like this because it is taboo. But as queer people, as others who grow up, you know, uh, this is a lot of why Rocky Horror is the most popular cult movie of all time. It's about sexual deviance being celebrated. That is what Rocky Horror is essentially all about, you know, is celebrating these taboos. And I think Shape of Water, in many ways, was this sort of even more subversive version of that because he packaged it like a, a beautiful fairy tale romance. And it's just such a gorgeous movie and it's so great. And it completely obviously relates to his sheer love of Creature from the Black Lagoon. I mean, Mark hasn't seen it, which didn't you think that was weird? I actually get it in some ways. I think when you love something so much, like there's either you want to engage more or you want to maintain the purity yeah. of the version 
that you know. And well, we know talked that, about that, yeah. Yeah, and we know that uh, Guillermo del Toro created The Shape of Water because he didn't get the rights to remake The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Right. And I think, actually, too, our benefit as viewers... But yeah. if you know that and you're a big creature fan, as Mark is, he, you know, he talked about it. He's got a creature coming out of the wall in his living room. You may be like, okay, well, I don't know that I need a derivative. And I get that too. I happen to like both. I totally get it. It's a lot about, I think, how I felt when um, Wicked was so popular. You know, so uh, that was a character uh, who meant the world to me, specifically the way she's presented in both the books, but especially Margaret Hamilton's performance in uh, the Wizard of Oz. And so the idea that, that the witch would actually be not evil and, you know, the, the victim. No, that is not how I wanted to see the Wicked Witch of the West. I had no interest in that. I fully rejected Wicked, even before hearing the music, the premise alone. So I get it, because Mark, Mark is very much in that boat. Like, he just loves the creature so much that he's preserving it. Now, Mallory, who also loves the creature, I believe, I hopefully I'm not speaking for her, but my, my sense was that she really loved The Shape of Water. And I think she called it sort of the, the unofficial sequel. And I also agree with you. If you look on Wikipedia, which of course, you know, we do, or I do before we do any of these episodes uh, to see what's been put up there. Um, I hadn't realized the uh, number of attempts at remakes that there have been. And so the, it's fascinating to go through and look at all the different people and all the different ways that Creature has been almost remade. And one of them, of course, involves Guillermo del Toro. And I, I would agree with you that I think him not doing a more conventional remake, but, but being pressed to do his own version, it was to our benefit. Well, look, sometimes not getting your way leads to true invention. I mean, much like... Hello. <laughs> well, much <laughs> like Guillermo del Toro not getting the rights to Creature from the Black Lagoon, the Duffer Brothers attempted to make it and didn't get it, so they made a show called Stranger Things, and that's true. So every so often... Yeah. You have to kind of step out and make something of your own, but it can be inspired. And what I love about this conversation and how this all circles around to everything we're talking about and what this show is about is there's no right way to be a fan of what you love. It just matters that you love it and that you celebrate it. Because you may love it in this particular way that you need to see all the derivatives, or you may love it in this way that you only want to look at it, this particular thing. Or, you know, if you're like, we know, Halloween, for example, how many different timelines are there? And depending what Halloween fan you talk to, it's a different love of a different movie of a different track. I like Laurie this way. I like this. What about Daniel Harris? What about Rob Zombie? What about the masks? Yeah. And that applies to every fandom in some way or another. You're completely right. And certainly Creature has that sort of larger than life, iconic persona at this point where so many people love it so many different ways that not everyone's gonna agree on what's good and what's not, you know, but but their love for it, you know, is, is what's real. Yeah, that's what the show is all about. And I can't be happier with our first episode back for season two. It's been so lovely. And Absolutely. Michael, how do we convince people to join our goddamn Patreon and help us keep the show on the road. Here's the deal, listeners. Every week you get to hear Peaches and I talk to truly amazing people and have these in-depth conversations and give and give and give. And the reality is we're doing that over at Patreon too. We're doing special episodes. We're doing special chats. 
talking about different movies. So if you love this and want more, if you are at midnight mass and it's two in the morning and you could use a two in the morning mass, that's where you find it. Join us in the after hours. Give us your money and party. Okay, you know what? It's interesting, Michael. So this is the tease and then we're going to say goodbye. We did this video recently and I think because our Patreon's less edited and less, less believe it or not, there's less work put into the, the cultivation of the content, which in a way is good. It's more casual. It's more personal. Uh, Michael and I were doing this video basically with juicy, juicy gossip and uh, just updating everyone. And my neighbor, Sand, walked into the apartment totally unexpectedly and Sand is my downstairs neighbor and someone who subscribes to our Patreon actually reached out to me and was like wait a second did I hear you right when you said the woman that lives underneath you that you take care of with your partner dated you know Jodorowsky and was also close with Kenneth Anger and I was like yes you heard that right so I think what we're going to do is actually, I would love, and Michael's hearing about this for the first time, to actually pursue bringing Sand on for the Patreon. So Sand is my downstairs neighbor. She was a showgirl in Vegas. She worked for Liberace for many, many years. She dated cult filmmaker. If you don't know Jodorowsky, you know, you got to check out Santa Sangre, El Topo. And then she was very, very close friends with Kenneth Anger, who just turned 95 years old yesterday. So, Michael, let's do that. That's a, that's a reason to subscribe to our Patreon. You're going to get to meet the legendary Sand, Peaches' neighbor. And I think that that is a good way to also say we'll have guests on for Patreon episodes that you may not get on the show. Sand being the first and who knows who's next yes all right well that's that's the first episode back we can't thank you enough we love you it's so good to be here talking with you michael and for all of you listeners at home if you are turned on by the thought of rubbing up against some scaly gilly webbed features if that gets you all wet and aroused well then you too are one of the children of the podcore now Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>